All right, we're going to be continuing our discussion of our church, presently called our church covenant, moving toward calling it our church commitment, something along those lines. And what I want to do this morning is read for you some samples of what other churches have put in there so that we can get a feel for maybe some important elements to think about including and then see how that compares to what is in our existing one. And then next week, the goal would be that I'll bring some proposed wording and we can kind of talk through it and see um, what needs to be revised as far as wording. And then we'll take a break for a while from that and go back to our Habits of Grace book in Sunday school. But on Sunday evenings, we'll do like we did with the Statement of Faith and have more of a church-wide discussion for a few weeks a little bit later this fall with a view to having something ready to vote on, either at a special meeting or by our business meeting in January. So that's the plan of kind of the direction we're heading with these things. So here is uh, an article called Don't Neglect the Church Covenant. Let me just read some of this for you. We are reworking our specific membership covenant that's been largely non-existent in the life of our church for many years. It's our desire as elders to raise it back to a state of prominence, visibility, and functionality in the life of our church. As I've recently been reading and considering the wording of our covenant, I've been thinking about the implicit and explicit membership covenant of the local church and its value for the church. We would be wise to take it seriously. So implicit, by what he means by that is, what are things the church is supposed to do based on the testimony of the New Testament? And even if we don't say it every week, these are the things that we should have in the back of our minds we're supposed to be doing. So the implicit church covenant. As individuals follow Christ by faith and identify with him through baptism, they are brought into the life of a Christian community called a church. As individuals are added to the church, there are implicit expectations for both the church collectively and the new members specifically of the local assembly. It comes with the territory. When you have people, there are needs and expectations. Some of the implicit membership requirements include, and uh, there's a number of passages here, so I'm going to have some of you turn to them and read them for us if you would be willing to help out in that way. The first one is Acts 2, 42 to 47. Who would like to do that one for me? All right, what are some of the things that are still relevant for today? What are the, some of the things that were perhaps unique to the, the situation of the first century church? And what Paul just read. 
Sure. Why do you think the early church was doing that? Yeah, why? Yeah, there was a sense in that culture of not only if you got cut off from your family, it wasn't necessarily just like, now I can't go to family reunions. It was, that's my livelihood because a lot of the, the trade work, the fishing, the carpentry, all those things that flowed through family lines, you weren't a part of the family, you didn't have work. How are you going to provide for yourself? So I think that, was, that one's kind of a reality. What, what's another thing that was a reality of the first century church that does, no longer takes place today? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the sharing of meals. And there's not really any reason that it couldn't, but uh, obviously it doesn't. That's one that we could potentially think about. Um, what about with regard to the apostles and doing signs and wonders and miracles? Why is that not taking place today? Right, but even more specifically, there's no apostles today. And so that's part of why that's not taking place. So the way that he summed this up was participation in corporate worship through ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word, observation of the ordinances, and prayer. Those are some of the things that he highlights as being important from that passage. And I'll post this article um, on the church Facebook page for those of you who'd like to review it further because I think it, it does a really good job um, helping us to think through some of the elements that we as a church are supposed to do and how we then word those into uh, official statements of the church. Uh, second one is found in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Who would like to read that? Okay, Evan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do we know that this is about the church? Okay, what else? Look at verse 17. He says, tell it to the church. So we know that this is the context of the church, which is interesting because the church doesn't yet exist by understanding of it. That would have happened at the day of Pentecost. Jesus is talking about how things are going to work in the context of the church that has not yet been fully formed. Just like in Matthew 16, Peter's confession of Christ, his statement that Christ is the Son of God is the foundation of the church, which does not yet exist. And, and the, that message through the work of the apostles is how God is going to build his church. So if we had to sum up what these verses are talking about, what would be some phrases or words that would kind of fit with that? Church discipline, okay. What would be some other words that would go along with that, possibly? 
confrontation, accountability. Yeah, there's a, lo there's a lot of uh, uh, different phrases we could use to describe it. Uh, the one the author of this article uses is spiritual accountability. Um, and uh, remember the discussion we had in our statement of faith, there's a sense of we should be watching out for one another's souls. That's, that's kind of what it boils down to. Along those lines, if there is accountability to one another, Hebrews 13, 17 uh, also talks about, and let me just read that one there for you. It says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So we mutually have a responsibility to one another to be caring for one another's souls, and those who lead the church have a responsibility to oversee that process. Um, furthermore, we come to a passage like, uh, turn to John 14, 15. <coughs> Familiar verse, someone want to read that for us? John 14, verse 15. All right, so if we had to sum that up, words we could use to describe that? Obey. Also the idea of holiness. Here's what God expects in light of us being his followers. 1 John 2, 3 says something very similar. Uh, and then we come on to the next part. Um, Kelly, you had your hand up. Do you want to read Ephesians 4 and verse 3? So in the local church, one of the important things that we need to be preserving is unity. Okay? So, so far we've had participation in the life of the church, uh, preaching, ordinances, and prayer. We've had spiritual accountability both to one another, to the leadership of the church. Along with that, the idea of pursuing holiness, the idea of unity. What is... Um, what, is, what are some of the potential threats to unity that we have to watch out for in the local church? Okay, so who would that be? Okay, non-believers, specifically those who are coming in and trying to contradict what the Bible says. Who else? Or what else? There's some other... False doctrine, which could be connected with what Paul mentioned or could be if we're not careful with discernment individually. Okay, good. Tonight we're going to look from James 4 that worldliness in terms of our attitudes and our desires creates disunity within the church, wars and fightings among you because of your uncontrolled desires. And so there's a variety of threats to unity of the church. What is not a threat to the unity of the church is the truth. And sometimes, ironically, people try to minimize the truth in a goal to preserve unity. And by that I mean they say, well, you know, if we say this or this or this or this, that's going to offend certain people, create disunity, so let's just sort of go to a lowest common denominator. But we can't abandon the clear truth of Scripture to preserve unity with those who may not even be genuinely believers. And so that's something we have to be careful of and thinking about. All right, moving forward. Uh, Hebrews 10 is a familiar passage. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
Anybody remember why that passage says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Feel free to turn there if you want, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. There's one reason, I think, in verse 23, and then there's another at the end of 25. Okay, good. Specifically in what context, verse 25? Encouragement, but what's going to take place, he says, at the end of 25? Christ's return. Since Christ is going to return, the day is drawing near, evil abounds, we need one another in terms of gathering in the assembly. Verse 23, the promise is, or the encouragement is, he who promised is faithful. We're not doing this by ourselves. It's Christ's church. He's upholding us, and so we need to keep that in mind. So, not forsaking the assembling of the local church. Now, some people will take this passage, and they'll say, well, you can't tell people they need to come to the church gatherings because that's a kind of legalism, and you're misusing the verse. But, practically speaking... How are we going to be around each other if we don't assemble, right? So it doesn't say you have to be there at every single time the church's doors are open. Sometimes the church doors are open because we're doing a maintenance project. That's not when we necessarily expect you to be here. But practically speaking, if we don't gather regularly, there's not that accountability. There's not opportunity to do many of these things that can't rightly be done individually. They have to be done by the church gathered. All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Let's all turn there. That's a long passage. We'll just highlight a few of the verses from there. The broad context is the subject of spiritual gifts. <coughs> One important verse would be 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 and 13. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So, first of all, God is the one who has collectively placed us into one thing called the church. And if we are part of the church, there is an awareness of that, by, by, by implication, there has to be an awareness of we are gathered together as a church because practically it doesn't work otherwise. There's also this reality that there are a variety of gifts. And he, Paul uses in verses 14 uh, down through 21 these illustrations of how the human body functions. You have an ear, an eye, a hand, a foot, and so forth. If all the parts of the body want to do the same job, would it work? No. God has blessed each of us individually with one or several gifts, things that are intended to be used to build up the church body, things that are specially enabled by the Holy Spirit, things that are not necessarily like disconnected from our background or experiences, but something that God has also supernaturally worked in us. For example, 
someone may exercise hospitality very well. They're exercising hospitality could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because they grew up that way. It could be because they didn't grow up that way. And so in that way, their background and experience plays a role in their desire to do that. But the reason that they are doing that in the context of the church to serve God is because God has gifted them in that way. Along these lines, if someone... Um, well, let me just put it this way. Does anyone have the spiritual gift of picking up trash off the floor? You have? Okay, good, good. Yeah. We all have a responsibility to do all of the things that are necessary in the church. We have, we're better at some than others, okay? Some people are gifted in music, some people are gifted in teaching, some people are gifted in encouragement, some people are gifted in, and the list goes on. How do we know that there are potentially more things than are listed in a specific list of gifts? Because all of the lists of gifts are different from each other. And so, um, the bottom line is, as God has enabled you to serve in the church, serve in the church. In the past, uh, in previous generations, maybe two generations ago, there was a, a, a strong emphasis on sort of doing something like a spiritual gifts inventory. So, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? I'm going to fill out a checklist. Are you good at this? 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 Your spiritual gift is, and it would fill in the blank for you. The better method of discovering your spiritual gift is to start serving in the church and to be open to the input of fellow church members who may, by observation, become more aware of what you are good at than you would naturally realize just sort of thinking about it on your own. Here's an illustration. Barnabas, in the book of Acts, is called the son of encouragement. Is that the name that he gave himself? No, the apostles gave him that name because they observed him encouraging people, and the net result of that was they encouraged him to develop that, and so he was the one who went to people like Saul when nobody trusted him, or was sent out on a mission to bring Saul back and start doing some missionary work uh, in connection with the church at Antioch. And so, with regard to spiritual gifts, God gives them to us. We're supposed to exercise them. We're not supposed to compare ourselves with other people. And instead, the goal is to glorify God. At the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Verse 27, God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. This is the context for 1 Corinthians 13. We talk about it being the love chapter, but it's only the love chapter in the context of God has given you spiritual gifts, use them humbly, recognizing that you serve God in that way. So, uh, gathering, participating in preaching the word, observation of the ordinances and prayer, spiritual accountability personally and to church leadership, pursuing holiness, maintaining unity, not forsaking assembling together, 
being a visible and functioning member who's exercising spiritual gifts. And then the next one is a string of verses along the subject of maintaining Christian love and honor for one another. So we can turn back to Romans, which is just a few pages before. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Someone read that for us? Okay, Margaret. Okay. There are a good number of one another passages in the New Testament. In other words, here are things you are supposed to do toward fellow members of the church. This is just one example, but we are supposed to be exercising these one another kinds of ministries in the church. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's uh, something that we have to actively work at, right? We have to actively work at it in families. There's times when you're not getting along with everyone in your family. The same thing is true in the church. We have to actively work at showing love to one another. Uh, Matthew 28 is a familiar passage. We need to be involved in the church's work of making disciples and evangelizing the world. And this is not necessarily an exhaustive list, but it's a helpful starting point of all of the things that we're supposed to be doing as a church. Along those lines, there are also a number of things that are in our statement of faith. Let me just read for you quickly our paragraph on the church. God established the church under Christ as the gathering of those who believe the gospel message. Until Christ returns, the church does God's work by making disciples through evangelism and missions, by teaching and maturing those who believe, by doing ministry and enjoying fellowship, and through private and public worship. The church gathers in unity to be equipped and goes out to do God's work showing God to the world. And then more specifically, the church consists of those who have believed and are then baptized by immersion, gathering in local assemblies to read the scriptures and pray, being shepherded by pastors and served by deacons, practicing the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's table, and caring patiently for members by admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, and helping the weak. There's a lot of correspondence between the list that we just went through and the things that are in our statement of faith. The reason that I think he calls that the implicit church covenant is because sometimes we don't make the connection between here's what the church is supposed to be and do, here's what we say that we believe, am I actively involved in doing it? And that's where it's helpful to have a set of church commitments in that we regularly remind ourselves here's what we ought to be doing. So, um, and again, I am uh, hesitant, in light of what we looked at last week about the technical definition of a covenant, to call it a covenant. But um, let me read his illustration because I think it's still helpful. My father served for 36 years as a fireman. I can recall him explaining to me as a boy the importance of the uniform he wore to work every third day. On his days off, he didn't wear his uniform. But every third day, he would appear in the living room early in the morning dressed in his uniform. He explained to me that while he was dressed in the uniform, he was a direct representative of the local community. Therefore, the chief had expectations for all employees and boundaries they must submit to while in uniform. 
If they were caught in violation of those boundaries, it could result in a formal and professional reprimand. As members of God's universal church, we represent Jesus no matter where we live and travel. However, on a local level, we represent Christ and the local body that we're members of in our community. Many churches have a specified church covenant that outlines the big membership expectations for the entire church body. These agreements serve as pledges or promises that we're engaging in together with the entire church to engage in ministry and life that honors Christ. And then he gives some questions. Does your church have an explicit church covenant on display or contained in the governing documents of the church? Does your church ever read it aloud to remind the entire church of the promises? Do you take it seriously? Could it be the lack of functional and binding church covenants in local churches of our day serve as proof of the downgrade of biblical church membership? Often people make statements such as, do we really want to make it more difficult to enter the local church than it is to enter heaven? He says, in one sense, yes, we should. For instance, the condemned man on the cross next to Christ went to heaven without entering through church membership. So it is possible to go to heaven without church membership, but not very likely. Even if your church doesn't operate with an official, explicit church covenant, it would be wise to humbly submit to the implicit expectations found in Scripture. Don't play fast and loose with God's church. Make it your goal to become a visible, humble, functional, submissive church member for the glory of God. All right, any feedback, any thoughts on those things that we just went through? Positive, negative, impressions? Okay, so it's helpful to think through. What else? Is it possible for... So, there's dangers on either side. If we have a list of expectations, but we never remind ourselves of them, and we never actively... Um, encourage one another to do them that's not very useful the danger on the other side is that someone could see that as a tool for as we talked about at the very beginning of this discussion getting someone else in trouble neither of those is a right result the way to guard against the danger of not following it is to remind ourselves more regularly of what we are expecting to do, right? And the way to guard against the danger of seeing it as a tool against other people is to remember why we're in the church in the first place. We're not in the church to seek personal gain, promote selfish ambition, uh, <coughs> advance ourselves at the expense of someone else. If we have that attitude, the problem is not with the tool. The problem is with our hearts. And so that's something we've got to be constantly on guard against. So, in uh, the next 10-15 minutes here, I know this is a little bit tedious, but I just want to read you a couple of samples of other church covenants so that you guys can be thinking about that a little bit when we come to next week and say, here is how we want to have our church commitments laid out uh, here. So, this is one from uh, John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist Church. Um, actually, 
I'm going to skip over that one because that one actually is pretty similar to the wording of our existing one, which is not necessarily a bad thing, just simply I think it would be more helpful if we worded ours in a more clear way. Um, let me turn back to the first one I was trying to find here. There we go. Can I help you? No. I had glanced through these and, and, and I had forgotten I would put them in the wrong order. So, All right. This is a sample church covenant. A fellow named Justin Taylor posted on Gospel Coalition. And he speaks positively of John Piper, for those of you who think that I don't like him. Their, their church covenant uh, is tied to one that was a Redeemer Church of Dubai. Here's just a, a quick reading through it to give you an example of what one church has done. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, depending on the Holy Spirit, establish this covenant with one another. In all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through him and to whom are all things, to him be all glory forever. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. With humility and gentleness, patience and love, we will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We will train our children in the instruction of the Lord, seeking to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ before our family, friends, and neighbors. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism in the Lord's Supper, and the loving exercise of church discipline. We will contribute cheerfully and generously to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and to the nations. We will, when we move from this place, unite as soon as possible with some other church where we can cover, carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. In all these things, we rely on our God, who has made a new and everlasting covenant with us, saying, They shall be my people, I will be their God, I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in them doing good with all my heart and soul. In and because of Jesus we pray, amen. All right. Positive things about that one, things that strike you as we might want to word it a little bit differently. What are some uh, impressions that you have of it? Okay. okay. Did you notice how a lot of those, even though they didn't say this is such and such reference, was pretty much exact quotations of scripture? So that's good. Okay. Um, what are a few points where we might have hesitation in their wording of it? Okay. 
probably the we're calling God to witness that we're committing to do this is, again, if, it, if we're saying that something is a good idea as opposed to it's biblically mandated, we should be hesitant about bringing it up to the level of swearing an oath, the promises you make in marriage, those sorts of things, which is sort of the discussion we've been having all along. So yeah, the first paragraph, maybe, maybe tone it down a little bit, not to de-emphasize the seriousness of it, but just to say, you know, a little bit more specifically our purpose. Um, there's discussion among churches about whether the relief of the poor is a responsibility of all churches, and particularly whether it is a primary responsibility of all churches. So that's something we would want to think about. Um, the last point of question probably would have to do with the quoting of Jeremiah 32 with regard to the New Covenant. There are those who would say the New Covenant is specifically with Israel and the church participates in something like the New Covenant or God has allowed us to benefit in some of those same kinds of blessings but recognizing that that promise was originally made to Israel. So I'd be a little bit hesitant about that being the primary basis of we are covenanting together because of a new covenant God has made with us because if we're not Israel, technically God didn't make that covenant with us. Does that make sense? So um, probably I would you know, stop it before that and just say the, the last phrase with regard to if we go from this place, we'll unite with another church that's going to follow these sorts of principles. I think that's a good statement to have because it reminds us that if we ever start to think about we're going to go to another place, one of our first and primary things ought to be, is there a good church that I can join with and fulfill these responsibilities? And again, like Paul raised in a previous discussion, if it's a covenant, you don't go into a covenant saying, and when we move on from this relationship, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. But if it's a set of commitments with the recognition that in God's sovereignty and the ebb and flow of human life, we might end up in a different place, then yes, I think we ought to have a reminder. And if we do, here's what we ought to do when we get there. So that one was, I think, helpful because it's very scriptural and um, relatively short. I mean, it, it's a little bit lengthy, but I thought it was fairly clear. Probably the only, uh, the only word that maybe was a little unclear is injurious speech. You could say something like speech that harms one another. That might be a little bit more clear. Harmful speech, yeah, something like that. Um, let me find the... All right. Yeah. Let me read for you one other one, just for a little bit different take on it. This one's from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Mark Devers Church. He's the one that... Um, not sure his precise relationship to the Nine Marks organization right now, but he was very much involved in getting that going. Um, so they have gone through three or four different church covenants. Their church has been around a long time, hundred some years. And so they've gone through several different ones. The one that they presently have is this. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. 
We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Differences, similarities, thoughts on that one as compared to the last one that I read. There is a fair bit of scripture quotation, but it may be not as clear to the references. Yes. Yeah. So phrases like live carefully in the world, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that's uh, Titus 2, right? The grace of God has appeared teaching us to um, deny ungodliness and worldly lust and walk carefully and soberly in this present world, something along those lines. Um, the phrase, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that's Ephesians 6. Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that's Hebrews 10. So there's a fair bit of scripture, just maybe, um, maybe the language is a little bit more formal or structured a little bit differently, so it wasn't quite as immediately obvious that there were scripture references. Uh, I appreciated when they said on the contribute part, to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel, I thought that was a helpful phrase because then it doesn't bring up the issue of, you know, are we supposed to accomplish social justice as a primary aim of the church? Which I think we would say, while a good thing is not the primary goal of the church if we're not trying to bring in the kingdom by our efforts, right? Any other thoughts about this one? Norma? Yes. Yeah, so, first of all, did you get one of these from last week about the Abrahamic Covenant? Let me make sure that you have one of those. So, one of the things would be, what are the, uh, what are the parts of a covenant according to the Old Testament and the New Testament? Um, Essentially, it's God entering into an agreement with people. So, in the New Testament, trying to think if there's other... Jesus says, this is the new covenant of my blood. And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about that there is, we have entered in through the blood of Christ into a new and living way. Um... Aside from that, there's not a great number of references in the New Testament to the idea of covenant. 
part of that, I think, has to do with a shift in focus from the people of Israel to the Gentiles more broadly. And so, um, with regard to all of that, in the Old Testament, God made covenants with Abraham, with the people of Israel through Moses, with David, and then there's in Jeremiah the New Covenant. Those are all with the people of Israel. There is a great deal of discussion among people who study the Bible how we as Christians in the present day connect with any or all of those. Uh, the short answer would be we participate in the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham, which we've been talking about in Genesis, if we have the same kind of faith as Abraham. We don't participate in the Mosaic Covenant because we're not Jewish people, we're not people of Israel. Um, the Davidic Covenant, our only connection to that is that our salvation is through Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant. And then with regard to the New Covenant, we have the opportunity to receive the same kinds of blessings through Christ that God promised to the Israelites, recognizing that that again was primarily directed toward the people of Israel. Does that help answer the question at all? Okay. So, again, a lot of these are phrased as covenants. I would be happy to call them commitments because they are things we are purposing together to do based on Scripture in light of what we believe, but we would not understand ourselves to be under a covenant in the same way that the people of Israel were. Any other questions or thoughts as we wrap up here in the last couple of minutes? Sure. So my goal over the next week would be to take excerpts from these two, put them together in light of what's presently in our church covenant, and come up with a list of here's some church commitments, which we can then talk about next week as a preliminary step toward revising what we have toward clarity and uh, something that we would use regularly. In my mind, this would be something that we would Maybe not every month, because I don't want it to be something that we... There's the danger of repeating something too often, and then we just say it because we're saying it. There's the danger of never looking at it at all, and then we forget what it says. So trying to strike a balance in that, but some tool that we can use to regularly remind ourselves of these things. So, All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the breadth of your word, the many truths that are contained in it, the responsibilities that you've given to us as your people in the church. Help us to fulfill those responsibilities well, and if in some small way, by listing those out and reminding ourselves regularly of them, we can fulfill them more faithfully, I pray that that might be a good and a helpful thing, realizing that it's not merely by reminding ourselves or by... Um, the making of promises, it's by your Spirit helping us to actually do the things that we are committing that we will honor you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.